And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. Hello, everyone, and welcome. It is Monday. Let me turn that microphone down because that's a little bit loud. Hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving weekend. All things considered. Uh, feedback, if you want to send that to us, you can uh, send us an email, live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. The live chat is open, but we are going to be playing back a recorded session, so uh, keeping an eye on it sideways because uh, I'm doing six things at once here, but you will not know because I'm not going to miss a beat here. <laughs> if you are uh, listening to this show as a podcast, if you prefer to listen to this show as a podcast, I guess we could call it the Sci-Fi For Me Radio Network, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Double Twist, all of those places. This show is available in audio form. And... If you would like to save some money, I know Cyber Cyber Monday going on right now. Ten percent off you can save with uh, with the promo code Sci-Fi for Me Ten. Oh wait, that's not the uh, that's not the right graphic. There it is, SuperheroStuff.com. Uh, the promo code Sci-Fi for Me Ten. You can use that at checkout and save ten percent. I'm not sure if that's uh, if that's something you can use in combination with. Uh, other offers for like Black Monday or or Cyber Monday, you know, Black Friday or Cyber Monday, but it is something uh, that we have set up for you as well. Tonight we've got a new H two O podcast. Mr. Harvey and I are going to be talking about podcasts uh, that other than ours. We'll be making some recommendations and coming up in the in the week. Uh, we've got uh, that at eight o'clock tonight, and then. Later on, on Saturday, uh, just a programming note here, Good Morning Multiverse will be at a new time, 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central. I wanted to get that out uh, before anything else happens. Okay, so Barbara Ashford is waiting in the wings in a pre-recorded interview. So we're going to do this one quick thing, and then we'll be back with that. Stand by. We are going to put some rules in place. The grown-ups are back. And this time... Delizit, No subject is sacred. When they're making fun of him for being a Christian... Well, but no issue is ignored. This is a tragedy. This is a, a horrible thing. And no one is safe. But as someone who deals with depression, I, this, is, this is an issue with me. The H2O Podcast, Monday night at 8, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. Back live from the bunker, Jason Hudiger, and it is time to go on a little odyssey, I guess we could say. 
um, just because, you know, that's that's how we do. Joining us now, Barbara Ashford. She is an author. She is a musician. She's an editor and um, has a lot. I, I guess wears a lot of different hats. Uh, thanks for joining us. Hello. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing really well. Let me uh, let me turn that microphone up there and uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, both you as an author and an editor, but also we'll get into the Odyssey Writing Workshop as well because you're an instructor over there. But the first thing that I wanted to do, I want to clarify a couple of things here real quick because I'm seeing Barbara Ashford and I'm seeing Barbara Campbell. So your first books were as Barbara Campbell. And you have websites for both names, <laughs> and the Goodreads listings for both names don't connect. Although your websites do connect to each other, How, where what's the what's the story there? Why was there something that happened that now you changed your name and you're using a different pen name? Or I mean, because because Stephen King uses Richard Bachman, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't seem to me that this is uh, a a a pen name so much as just a name change well the first series that i wrote was very much a dark fantasy um more of an epic fantasy a third person multi-pov um a uh, kind of Iron Age, Bronze Age setting. My second series could not have been more different. I mean, it was a contemporary story, uh, first person, uh, largely a single person POV, a young woman set in a magical summer stock theater. And because they were so different, my editor at Daw Books suggested uh, suggested the name change. And then I had to come up with one. <laughs> All right. So so Ashford is the is the usual now because in your in your editing and your writing that's that's the that's the one you're going for by fiction, now, right? For fiction and teaching and editing, yes. Um, musical theater, I I write book and lyrics for musicals. I still go by Barbara Campbell. That was actually musical theater came before fiction. So if you go to the Barbara Campbell website, you're going to see both the first trilogy, Trickster's Game, and the three books that are in that series. But you're also going to find some of the musicals that I've written. So how did you get started in that as far as as far as the music side of things go? Where did that start? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I was one of those kids who was always involved in the theater. You know, I was acting and, well, please, one of my great first performances was as a spinning top in first grade. Um, but, you know, I did a lot of acting in high school and college. And I, 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 I went the uh, traditional job route. I was working in educational administration. And then I decided to run away to the theater. And I became an actress. I worked in summer stock and dinner theater all over the Northeast. And that eventually morphed into writing for musical theater. I, I kind of fell into a, a job writing lyrics for a children's show because I happened to be working as an actress with a guy who was a director and another guy who was a, uh, a musical director and they needed a lyricist. So from there, I, you know, I began writing book and lyrics eventually for children's theater and then eventually <laughs> uh book and lyrics for adult musicals okay and has that did that i guess was that the bug that bit you for writing fiction then or you just figured it's a it's a transition 
point? Well, again, or? you know, it's funny. I started again as a kid. I, I wrote fiction. I was particularly prolific in my preteen years. I mean, I wrote a World War II novel, knowing very little about World War II. I wrote historical romance, knowing very little about romance. But I had done some fiction writing before I really got too involved with the theater. And I returned to fiction. It was kind of at the point... I was between musical theater projects and believe it or not, I, I actually had this dream that gave me the idea for a novel and that novel, <laughs> I look back on it now, it just doesn't even seem possible. It just kind of, I was like, I was channeling it. It poured, it poured out of me in like three to four months, um, which was great, except it gave me the, the false idea that this is how all fiction writing would go but that first um that first novel was what actually got me an agent and was that was that Hartwood no, no. Hartwood Hartwood took a lot longer um <laughs> the first the first one um never it actually is never sold um I the the uh, my agent got like feedback we don't know how to market this it had fantasy it had romance it had history and so you know when i sat down to to work on another novel i said well okay i guess i better choose one and so that's how i kind of began writing fantasy and i i started and stopped any number of books and that was that was about the time that i discovered the odyssey workshop um which at the time was only a six-week residential program it's since grown into a lot more but I went up there um, for those six weeks, and that that was really a life-changing experience for me. So you say uh, you started and stopped a number of different stories. <laughs> uh, was that uh, you weren't quite sure how to crack it, or you oh this isn't good enough, or I'm I don't know why I'm doing this. I mean, was it was there a lot of second guessing on your part, or was this just oh this is just not up to snuff? I can't. I, I'm going to set this aside and try something else. I don't know if I even knew what snuff was at that point. I had before <laughs> I went to before I other than that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, uh, before I went to Odyssey, I had never taken a creative writing course I had never uh I'd never read a book on creative writing everything I knew I knew from reading and I was very much a pantser so I'd get this you know an idea or I'd get a character and I'd just go mm -hmm. and th for me that could only take me so far before I would like run into a wall and I wouldn't know well now what? Or the story would go in a completely different direction. I remember one, I fell in love with the antagonist. It was like, oh, well, wait a minute. Now what am I going to do? <laughs> and, you know, I think that's one of the really valuable things about having more craft because you have more tools to rely on. So when you run into that brick wall, it's like, okay, my usual tools aren't working. What else is in the toolbox that I can pull out to help me? Now, is the the reading that you have done over over the years? I'm I'm assuming that that's m multiple different types of genres. I see all of the bookshelves, and and I hear that there's a bookshelf even in the bathroom in every room of the house. Is what I read. <laughs> that, uh, that is true. <laughs> the the book that's a mix of fantasy and and history and all of these different you know all of this jumble of different genres is that just you synthesizing all of the different things that you've read over the years and trying to trying to make something out of it 
I don't even know if it was that conscious that I wanted to synthesize. Um, I, I got a particular idea. Um, I wanted to, you know, in part of building the world in, in, involved some historical research. That's for Hartwood. The first one, I, again, I just had an idea. I knew where it had to be set because that was in my dream. And then I just kind of went. It was, it was very much, um, as I say, it was like channeling. I didn't really then go back and and revise or edit. I mean, Hartwood was a completely different process um, and more than any other book because Hartwood took me so long because it was a process of putting together, tearing apart, putting it back together again. I was learning a lot about the craft of writing at the same time that I was trying to tell this story. And that more than anything else, I think, made me into a writer who could who could sell what she was writing did you have those aspirations for selling uh books because there are there's that there's that line where you know i'm just going to pick it up and i'm just going to do this for fun and you know you have a lot of people out there that are just writing as amateurs who and and i use amateur in a in the original sense of doing something for fun just because i want to do it not because right. you know not amateur in terms of the quality but there are a lot of people out there that write just to just to write because they enjoy doing it and it, there's that there's that line that you cross that suddenly you're a professional did you have those aspirations at the beginning or you know where you said I want to make a living out of this. I want to be a professional writer, and this is what I want to do for my career the rest of my life. Was there a moment there like that for you? There was, and actually it came before I started writing fiction. It was when I was working as an actress in Summerstock, and I had, you know, I, I just kind of begun to write for the musical theater, write these children's musicals. And at that stage in my life, I don't know, maybe I was, what, 35 I don't know but I said I said to myself okay let's let's be real brutally honest here I think I can make more money as a writer I can make a living as a writer and I'll be more likely to be able to do that than I will be able to make a living as as an actress mind you I, I love them both but that's where I made that conscious choice and the the aspirations that you know, did you have any uh, pushback from family friends? Oh, that's that's a crazy idea. Why would you want to do that kind of thing? You can't make any money doing that. Oh, please. It, no, that was <laughs> my family was actually more relieved. My father was horrified when I ran away from a, a job in college administration to become an actress. I mean, literally horrified. Um, you know, this was a man who'd done acting himself, not professionally, but he had done some acting. He, you know, came to every show I was in from spinning top on up. But the idea that I was going to throw away my education to become an actress simply horrified him. This is a man who had worked for the DuPont company since he graduated from college. So it was, it, for him, it was, it was very scary. Yeah. And has the, has the acting and the musical theater informed the craft of the fiction in, in ways that maybe yeah. you didn't expect or you had planned, oh, okay, well, I can use this and go do that. Well, I mean, certainly, um, the the acting that I did 
and my summer stock experience absolutely informed my novel Spellcast, which is set in a summer stock theater. And I drew extensively from my experiences in Summerstock to create that. Obviously, my Summerstock theater wasn't magical, but um, I, I drew a lot from those experiences. But in terms of the craft, um, I would say it's kind of a two-way street. I mean, as an actress, one of the things that I, I learned or I, I, I tried to do was always to be in the moment. Um, to make each moment feel real and and alive and not just, okay, now, now I say this line, now I walk here or whatever. And that kind of emotional truth and understanding, you know, breaking a scene down into beats so I can, I can understand the moment by moment emotions that my character is feeling, that has stood me in very good stead in terms of writing fiction. And in fact, using emotional beats is something that I talk about in my classes. I also think that as an actress and as a writer for theater, I mean, dialogue is, is one of the major tools that you have to work with. And for me, that's always come easiest. Um, and it's kind of my go-to position when I don't know exactly how I want to start a scene, I might sketch it out in, in dialogue, just, you know, kind of to get, the, the, the juice is flowing, you might say. Right. Do you find yourself acting out these scenes? I know I, there's there are a number of comics creators, for example, uh, especially on, on the illustrative side of it, a number of artists who will take photographs of themselves in various, po you know, various poses and positions. And, you know, so they have their reference material. Yep. Do, do you find yourself acting out scenes and see how it plays as you write these down and, and go through your books? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I also, um, I also use improv a lot. Um, sometimes, I mean, to give you an example of a, of a situation in my third book of the first trilogy, um, Foxfire, I had this scene where I had uh, several different characters. It was about, you know, we want little brother to come home and not run off with the trickster god, which is fine. That means there's conflict. People have different goals. But the problem was, you know, anybody who's reading the book is going to know, well, he's going to run off with a trickster god or else there won't be a story. So I, I did an improv to help me find kind of a, a different way into it where there would be more of a surprise. And I ended up bringing in his brother into this scene. And the scene became more about the revelations that happened um, in the course of a conversation with this trickster god and the other people. Um, and those revelations took the scene in a whole different direction. It took the book in a different direction. So I love improv. I think it's really helpful. I always encourage my students to try that. I mean, I just sit on the sofa and play all the parts and do all the voices and try to make sure my husband isn't home. <laughs> <laughs> um, how, how does your husband adjust when you're doing these kind of things? When you're, because we hear, we hear sometimes, you know, the author goes and and into seclusion essentially, and you know, don't bother me. I'm writing. Uh, and, and others, you you have somebody like Kevin J. Anderson who goes for a hike in the mountains and he's dictating all of this. There's a lot of isolation there for a lot of authors. Mm -hmm. How is it for you? Because you you're you and your husband both are are readers. I, I'm assuming. How involved in the process is he in terms of your stories? 
He is my first reader always. Um, he gives me, um, will give me ideas. I, he will, this, this one particular book I was writing, he was like literally line editing some of the, uh, <laughs> some of the dialogue. He goes, no, this guy, he needs to talk really, you know, in, in short and in incomplete sentences. And, and so he got all excited about that, but he is, he is always my first reader. Every book is dedicated to him. He will even, um, God love him. I, at one point, I was trying to figure out how this 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 fight scene would work, and I said, "Okay, so this woman is is hitting this man, and he has to he has to you know neutralize her essentially." Right. And and so I had this whole grand thing planned in my head of this extended mm-hmm. moment, and he just kind of whipped me around and, and and put my hands held my hands down. It was like, oh, okay, well. I, I hadn't thought about that one. So yeah, he's, he's very involved and, and that's great because it is such a, it is such a solitary profession that if you're off in your own world and that's where all your joy and all your inspiration comes from, the other half can feel left out. So I, I, I love having him involved. Now, did he know what he was getting into when you got married? We were both actors at the time, so he had he might have had some idea, but um, <laughs> um, I think, you know, he had he had done a little bit of writing himself, and so he's always had an appreciation for storytelling. So I'm I'm going to say he knew what he was going into, and I'm going to stick by that. Okay, all right. Uh, now you you concentrate uh, mostly on fantasy. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a particular reason to lean that direction? You just kind of gravitated toward that, or is is that is that genre that subgenre in in speculative fiction have a have a most favored nation status for you for some reason? Well, I think you know I was always one of those kids who you know I I was the youngest of three, but I was significantly younger than my sisters. So I spent a lot of time, you know, uh, in my head, but also, you know, making up stories, acting them out, you know, running around in the backyard, pretending to be a deer. Um, so, you know, I think some I, I hear of that. That's, I hear that's very popular on Twitch right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, what can I say? I was a trendsetter. It just took a long time for the trend to catch sure. on. Um, but you know, my, my father built me a tree house. So let me tell you the adventures there. Um, so I think that, um, that encouraged me to imagine other places, other worlds. Um, I, I, I've always been drawn to, um, stories that are character driven. I, I think for me, that's what pulls me into a story. And certainly as a writer, exploring character, exploring the complexities of, of human nature and conflicts and whatever, that, that has always, I think, you know, been a hallmark of my writing and as well as the kinds of things I like to read. Fantasy and science fiction both, of course, uh, have been used a lot for allegories. Um, you know, uh, Star Trek comes to mind as as far as you know you look at some of the original series and uh talking about racism in vietnam and all of these different things you have you have a number of different authors that are out there now that you know science fiction is is where we have our messages and and mm. the, you know you have the 
the times where the story can address something that's in our reality. There's a lot of reflection. There's a lot of examination of who we are as people. And, and there is there is some value to that. Do, do you, in the planning of a book, do you find a moment where you sit there and say, okay, I want to inject this allegory into all of this? Is there is there additional meaning in your stories, or you're just telling a story because you just want a good yarn? Well, I like to think, I mean, people who, who have read Spellcast, I mean, one of the greatest compliments they can give me, give me is that they laughed and they cried. Um, but they've also told me it makes them think about themselves, their relationships, their world. Uh, you know, I, I just, you know, one of the things, it's kind of my sign off for every online class I teach is like, we may be creating imaginary characters and imaginary worlds, but if we do our jobs right, we can we can help people look at their world and themselves in a different way. And I think that's like the highest praise you can give a writer. Do you have specific goals along those lines when you start a book or it just it, whatever happens in the book happens in the book? Do you have it, do you have it depends. It depends on the story that I'm telling. Um, usually if I'm trying to if, if, if that's part of the message, so to speak, or the theme, that's going to be something that I think about at the very beginning because that's going to inform everything else. Right. Um, you know, and, and then it becomes, you know, more often than not, it, the, the few short stories I've written, that is often like how I get into a short story. Novels, I would say my novels, not as much. Is the, the idea of message fiction and uh, problematic at times because we've had you know especially with with the Hugo community for example mm. you've had the debate back and forth on the purpose of science fiction and fantasy what is it what is it here for and it's always been you know we've always had messages and there's always been politics and and that sort of thing and the debate back and forth of what makes a good science fiction speculative fiction book your mileage may vary depending on where you sit and and it, it seems to me that attention has kind of come off of the craft of the story mm. more and and it's more into i mean because there are a lot of people that complain about the identity politics coming into the fore and becoming the most important thing not just in in the Hugos, but just in general in the culture. Do you run into that, uh, do, or does that become a consideration in in any of the stuff that you're writing? Do you think about that kind of thing, or just here's the here's the lead character, and the lead character is is whoever it is? I I think for me, it's it, I'm looking at the world of that book, and that world should help readers understand some aspect of their world better. Does that mean I go in with a message that, you know, I, I want people to wear face masks? No. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think 
one thing that I, I do think is important is understanding the heart of the story that you're telling. Yeah. And whether you call that theme or you use the Robert McKee's controlling idea or, or whatever it is, I, I think that's what elevates a good read into the kind of story that's going to make a deeper impact on readers and make them continue to think about the story long after they put it down. So I, I do think theme is essential. And uh, it was another Odyssey graduate, I think, who referred to theme as the net that holds the story together. And I really think that's true, because I think without a strong theme, a strong understanding of the heart of the story that you're telling, it can just become sort of a, a, a series of adventures. And while that can be fun, I, I don't want to just have a story that's fun. I want it to have some meaning for, for me as a writer and also for people who read it. Right. Now, is that something you cover in, in your workshops and your discussion with students? Because there are going to be some that come in here and they want to write the next great American novel, right? <laughs> you know, the, that next groundbreaking classic that's that's going to be around. But it it almost feels like every now and again, the classic, whatever ends up being this book that stays around for 150 years, is almost a fluke. Mm. It is there discussion in in your classes at, at Odyssey about what makes a book timeless? What makes a book a classic? Because you know it, every story is a product of its time, but there are some stories that outlive the time in which they were created. I mean, you look at Stranger in a Strange Land. You look at uh, 1984, Animal Farm, or you know The Wizard of Oz, Frankenstein. There are there are stories that transcend their origin point. It, it, have have y'all gotten into an examination of of how that works? I mean, is it just luck of the draw? Um, no, I think I think it it it, it gets back to something. Um, I discovered this book called A Story is a Promise by Bill Johnson, and what he talks about is the idea that there. Are, you know, you need to examine the core dramatic value or issue that you want to explore. Are you exploring justice? Are you exploring freedom? Are you exploring identity? Um, and I think when you deal with values like that, that are timeless, that all, all human beings have either experienced in one way or another, or at least they they have experienced them through literature, if not directly. Um, when you're dealing with dramatic issues like that, they are naturally timeless because they are I intrinsic to the human experience. Right. Is are, are do you draw on your own life experiences for any of this? Do you sit there and go, "Oh well, you know that that kid that bullied me in the second grade—that's going to be my next villain." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I remember you, Tommy. Uh, <laughs> I'll change your name to Tomac so no right. one will know. Um, well, as I said, Spellcast, I, I cannibalize my life. It's the closest thing to an autobiography I will ever write. I mean, I used, you know, stories of things we my, my parents did for me growing up on Christmas. I mean, you name it, not just the summer stock experiences. 
but yeah, I, I think, I think I, I, I draw from my life. I draw from other stories that people tell me about their lives. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, some of it is completely out of my realm of knowledge. I mean, Hartwood is about a hunter. Well, you know, limited experience there. So then, you know, I had to sit down and read, you know, the survival guide in the wilderness to try to figure out how I make a fishing trap. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, since I was a history major in college, I love all that research. So I was, you know, thrilled to be able to, you know, discover all this new stuff. So I'm assuming that you dive into your world building with, uh, uh, with a certain amount of gusto then when you're, when you're doing all of this. Oh, I do. I mean, <laughs> Sometimes it takes me longer than others to build the world. I mean, the world of the Summerstock Theater, you know, taking place in this old barn in the countryside, that I knew firsthand. Um, describing the day-to-day life and religious rituals of a tribe in uh, Iron Age nature of iron age nature worshipers not so much um i think the hardest thing for me is i can get so carried away by research that it's like oh i want to put everything on the page so everyone can enjoy this right and i remember when i was writing heartwood i found this this archaeological site where they had this they'd found this shoe that was like perfectly preserved and of course i was thrilled and immediately began writing a scene about tying shoes (laughs) i had to say okay Mm, probably not something that my my protagonist is going to be thinking about a lot and it's it's how you drop in that information that I've learned more about as I've gone on I mean I remember I did all this research on Bronze Age shipbuilding and so of course I wanted to show it off and so when this kid is taken to the ship it's like oh now let me tell you all about the ship and then then I had to step back and go wait a minute this kid has just been you know, abducted and dragged to the ship as a captive. Is he really going to be sitting around going, my, that vessel is 10 times as long as the coracles we use on our lake. So, you know, then you got to find other ways to get out information that will help build the world for the readers that are still true to the character and to the character's emotions at that moment. And in the Summerstock stories, we get um, uh, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland in cameos do they show up i mean no, they, you're no, putting they on don't. a show in the barn i mean that's that's almost <laughs> we've got a barn let's write a novel <laughs> right now do you have people that you know that show up do you t- do you t- uh tuckerize uh people that you know and put them in as characters or, or is uh, that a I, trade I, secret I, I did with one um and it was actually a colleague of my father's and i actually um i i used his first name his real first name for this character and indeed some of his cadences of the way he spoke I I I use that too um other than that I I I I I might be inspired by someone that I've worked with or you know in the theater and so I'll I'll put them in Mm -hmm. but the Reinhard was my my big steal (laughs) (laughs) and do you uh do you ever look at actors performers and you know like uh, up on screen you know tv and film actors and use them as models for any of your characters and maybe you know hey if we get this movie deal brad pitt can play this character no i've I've written chapter one but if we get the movie deal um (laughs) yes i i do that i did that in heartwood especially um 
oh gosh, I can't think of his name, Clive Owen. Oh yes, oh, yes. I wanted Clive Owen to play the protagonist. <laughs> of course, he was, you know, a little younger than too. But yeah, I mean, it it, it sometimes it helps to to be able if if you know if, if somebody epitomizes what you're looking for. That's actually one of the things I really liked about the Game of Game of Thrones series on HBO. It was, you know, I I had read the books, and so I had a visual idea of who these people, what these people would look like, and so many times I would see them and be like, yep. That's exactly what I saw, and that helped, you know, I think that always helps bring people in. There are some, uh, and I've seen this in the comics world a lot, uh, but also with books, uh, we see so many books now that get the TV and movie deal before they're even published. And there's a lot of that, you know, every, every week we've got on our, on our Saturday morning news program, we've got one or two books that have got the deal with Amazon or Netflix, yeah. and they haven't even come out yet. They, the the books haven't even been published, <clears throat> and it the it it brings to mind uh, an online discussion, a debate. There are a lot of people going back and forth, um, and and the opinions vary on this. But there are a lot of people that feel like if you're writing the story to get the movie deal. Your priorities are in the wrong place. How do you feel about something like that? Do you ever go into a book thinking, oh, this will make a great Netflix series? Well, when I wrote my my novel when I was uh, 12 called Claudine, the first thing I wrote was the, the movie trailer. She was a nurse. She was a spy. She was a woman among women. She was Claudine. And every man she met loved her. And then I proceeded to cast it as well. Not that I had control issues or anything. Um, but in terms of these days, um, you know, to me, it's kind of the same as writers of fiction who who start a project because urban fantasy is really hot now. Well, it's hot now, but who knows if it's going to be hot a year from now when you finish this book and get an agent and send it out. And, you know, I, I, I always advise against chasing a market. Um, I, 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 yes. Do I dream that those things will happen to me? Yes. But I'm, I tend to focus on the story that I'm writing and are are we looking at any kind of uh, TV or movie deal uh, in in the works? Oh, honey, from your lips to God's ears. <laughs> um, there was there was some interest in Spellcast, um, but nothing has materialized as of yet. I I had actually I've had more luck on that front with my musicals um, that have been I you know I have a new one that's uh, opening next uh, well knock on wood opening next summer sure now do you have do you find in your workshops you have to manage students expectations a little bit as far as what kind of success they should expect from this whatever whatever project that they're working on because i I imagine you've probably got people at various different stages of experience and and a number of books under their belt or you've got first timers so how do you how do you manage okay you're writing this book it did you know you're not going to sell a million copies and be the next michael crichton how do you how do you do that to keep things in perspective well i first of all i i consider that my job is to help them improve their craft um if we have a discussion on marketing i will i will talk about you know 
the 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 chances of being a bestseller i had a friend who said well you know should i self-publish and i said well yeah if you want to uh, if you want to self-publish, that's certainly your choice. But, you know, re- remember what the odds are of becoming an overnight s- success. I mean, the people who are most successful with self-publishing are those who've already got a, a got a brand name um, and have name recognition. Right. So they have an audience that's already going to come to them. If people don't know you at all, you've got an uphill battle to get them to, you know, meet you and embrace your work. Now, we've gone about almost 12 years now waiting for our overnight success, so I, yeah. I, I, I can understand that. Uh, but you, you mentioned self-publishing. There, there is that option now uh, that has a little bit more legitimacy than it did, say, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't see so much with the vanity press anymore, but you do have a lot of people that are self-publishing. You have people that are using crowdfunding. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to put this book together. I'm going to put this anthology of short stories together. I mean, Crazy Eight Press just did their second, you know, thrilling adventure yarns, Robert Greenberger and that group over there. So these are not fly-by-night authors that are getting into the crowdfunding model. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the marketing. I, I had a conversation with Ann Crispin before she passed about her uh, Pirates of the Caribbean book. And she was saying, and this was, you know, you know you're know, you looking at a number of years ago now, yeah. but I imagine it's even more so these days, where the author has to bear more of the burden of the marketing of the book as opposed to, I mean, the publishing houses used to be all, you know, they'd spend the money to do this advertising. And I'm looking at the curriculum here on Odyssey. I don't see marketing as an item. So is, is Odyssey just craft of writing and story? Uh, Is there, is there value do you think in having a writer's workshop specifically about marketing your books? Well, Odyssey, the Odyssey Workshop, which is a six-week residential program, they have uh, sort of like week-long components on various, you know, elements, mm-hmm. you know, character, plot, world building, themes, um, but they also have, um, you know, a week that's dedicated to publishing, marketing, um, so it does incorporate that. Now, in the online classes, we really have, what, uh, four and a half hours of lecture, and it's very specific to a, a certain topic. Like my, my class this uh, coming up this January is on scene structure. And given the time that, you know, we have, we, uh, we, we focus real tightly on, on the particular topic. So I would say, yes, Odyssey does cover that. They're certainly in the discussion groups. That's a, a topic that comes up all the time. We're always sharing marketing information and things like that. Is there a value to having a, you know, a workshop that's totally dedicated to that? Um, I suppose, but I, I guess... I, I, I describe myself as a developmental editor, and so I'm just not doing copy edits. I'm, I'm really looking at the structure and the building blocks of the story and how they can be improved, how right. they can be made more cohesive. Every single person I have ever edited is nowhere near ready to think about marketing. They still need work on how to put a story together and make it as, as good as it can be. Um, and I... I 
maybe because I'm a writer myself and a teacher, I, I don't want to see people, you know, leapfrogging over, you know, over the time that's really needed in revision to make a story better sure. just in order to get it out there. You want to get out the best thing that you can, the best story that you can well and and for a lot of people the critical the critical time in that process is the rewrites is the is the revisions and the whole course on that for odyssey (laughs) um in fact i think that's going to be going to be next year um and 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 how to you know how to revise what to look for um and that whole process i mean i know from my experience in heartwood i mean i started off with a manuscript when I finally finished the first draft, it was 180,000 words. The final product was about 110,000 words. So I threw out pretty much a whole novel and I would say I rewrote about two thirds of that. So it was, it was brutal. I mean, at the time I didn't think it was, I look back and I go, Oh my Lord, I don't know how I lived through it. But since I didn't know what I was getting into in terms of revisions, I just kept plugging away and plugging away. And it, it was what it was. And I have to say that after putting in, you know, two, three years, uh, you know, trying to create that book and tearing it apart and putting it back together again. Let me tell you how rewarding it was when it was finally <laughs> accepted by Daw. I was like, yes. Is, uh, is it best to have an agent, an editor go through a publisher or, or does it depend on the book? I mean, when you're talking about, you know, self-publishing, because there's a lot of the editing process that, authors don't get to take advantage of when they self-publish. If you've got somebody who's leaning toward that, are there advantages to self-publishing in any way besides keeping all the money for yourself? But it seems to me that, that you would need at least to have some editorial services at some point mm-hmm. in that process. Well, I think so too. Although you're getting back to something you we, we you we were talking about a moment ago, and that was the idea that you know, you know, the the, the publishers would you'd spend all this money marketing. The same is true in terms of editorial. I mean, there was I was watching a movie. Oh shoot, I can't remember it, the name of it naturally, and that's so helpful. But it was about. Um, uh, uh, Thomas Wolfe and his editor, and we're talking back in what the fifties or sixties, and the process that this the they, the two of them went through the the years the editor took to you know pull out the story and prune away you know what didn't belong those days are gone you know yeah. editors essentially want a product that's very close to publishable they're not going to sit there and 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 nurture you for you know two years five years ten years because they sense your inner genius (laughs) now is that let's see um the last american hero no Um, no it, it was no I've got to. I've got to look it up. I'll send. I'll send it to you. I just stumbled upon it. it. Was Colin Firth as the editor and Jude Law as Thomas Wolfe? But it also had Nicole Kidman and I want to say Laura Linney. It's a recent movie. I'd never even heard of it. And was it? And I it just happened to come up on like HBO or something. Really? Okay. Well, let's take a look here. Quick, Google it. Uh, it has yeah. like a one-word title or something. Let's see here. Is a one-word title. Um. You say he's he's 
he's Tom, he's Thomas Wolfe. It's it, and it's Colin Firth and Jude Law that are the two principals. Colin Firth as Wolf? No, Jude Law is Wolf. Jude Law is Wolf. Colin Firth plays his editor, uh, uh, Mac. What's his name? Shoot. Max Perkins. Yes. Okay, it's called Genius from 2016. There you go. There I got go. the one word right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Now, we don't see a whole lot. I mean, when you get into these movies about writing and, you know, you get somebody like a, a, a Philip K. Dick or you get these stories about the writers mm-hmm. and they're either really tortured souls. Yes. Or it's, you know, it, it, it's it's a it's a glamorous life. There's no there's no middle ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have students that are coming into this with the expectation that it's just going to be, oh, it's a piece of cake. It's going to be just like this movie that I saw. That I want. Yeah. I, I'm just going to sit down and then plop the you know get in the typewriter and well, word processor or computer or laptop or whatever, and I'm just going to bang this thing out and here yeah. we go. You know, I would say, no, I would say most of, most of the students that I get, and keep in mind when I say students, these can be people ranging from college, people in college to people on Medicare. So, you know, it's a wide age range there. And I would say that they are pretty practical and, you know, and understand the difficulties in getting published and the, the the difficulties in writing because I think they're they're all it's not like they wake up one day and say you know I'm going to write a novel these are people who've been working on stories some of them have stole sold stories some of them have um, you know been working on novels so I think they come in with a pretty clear idea of what the writing process is like and what a lot of them need is sometimes just you know a different perspective on on the craft or tools that they haven't tried before um, and and also a you know I think a sense of particularly when you know in revisions, I, I think understanding that it can be, it can be a lengthy process and to allow it to do allow it to be lengthy if that's what it takes to create the best story. Right. You know, everybody and everybody wants to celebrate. I finished a novel and <laughs> you, you, finished, know, you finished the draft. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And everybody and, and you should celebrate. It's a huge deal. Um, but it's, you know, then you need to take a deep breath and, and step away for a while and try to come back with a, you know, fresh perspective so that you can kind of put on your, your editor hat and try to take as, as objective a look at what you've written as you can. Now, when you're giving other people feedback as an editor, uh, do you find that you have to suppress your author voice a little <laughs> bit? Now, here's what I do. Um, I, you know, I will, I will never say you should do this because it's their story. I will, um, I will tell them, okay, this is what I see. I think it, you know, it may have more impact if you, if you did, if you tried something like this, um, if you rearrange the scenes here, then, or roll these two scenes together, that might have more impact. Um, 
I resist the urge to line edit and say, this is how you should, this is how you should say this. Um, because, you know, that's, they have their voice, they have their story. Um, I'm there to provide options and also to, you know, also to kind of brainstorm if they want me to, you know, it depends. Some, some people want that, some people don't. And I learned that from my editor at Daw Books because I was always willing to sit down and, and you know, Sheila and I would talk for like I, I, two hours about how to deal with X, Y, Z. But she told me that, you know, she had other writers who um, all they wanted to know was this is not working. And then they would go, OK, and then they'd go off and, and, and work on it. Right. Which do you find most fulfilling for you yourself in the creative side of things? Composing, writing, editing, teaching? That's a tough one. Um, you know, in terms of whether it's writing lyrics or writing the book for a musical or writing a novel, let's put that in the creative end of things. It's my favorite when it's going great. <laughs> um, and when it's not going great, then it's not quite as rewarding. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I've discovered that I really love teaching. Um, and I, I like working with people. And, and, and I'm enthusiastic about, about the craft of writing. And if I can share some of that with students and I can help them, you know, it's, feel like they're in a better place at the end of a course than they were coming in in terms of more confidence as a writer more tools to use as a writer that that makes me feel very good i feel like that's a very useful thing and the odyssey workshop let's talk about that for just a second here because you've you've been there a few times and you're you're there now is that right you're you're teaching there you're in the in the middle of a class and you've got another one coming up is that right no, actually, there's the workshop in the summer, um, which I attended many years ago. Every January, they have a series of online uh, classes. Every, every year, they have three. Um, and this year, I think it's me doing scene structure, and there's also one on emotion and writing and also on world building. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm critiquing uh, for the Odyssey Critique Service. I've been doing that for more than a decade. Um, and I critique manuscripts for Odyssey. I also do my own independent editing. Um, but the workshop generally takes place in June, July. Um, and then there's a graduate workshop, which is just one week that follows the workshop, which you know people can go to. And again, the online courses take place in January. And both the workshop and the online courses are... Um, it's a competitive uh, entry and en entrance. Uh, you have to uh, you have to submit a writing sample, and there's always more people who want to attend than there are places. Sure. And it's Gene Cavellos, who's the director of Odyssey, the founder of Odyssey, which has been around for what 20, 25 years now, I think. Um, Gene is the one who goes through every application and. You know, if, if you apply to an online course and you don't get in, she will even give you feedback to help you improve uh, your writing, even though you're not going to be in the course. And the deadline for signing up and sending in an application for the next for the online sessions for January is when? 
I believe it's December 7th. If you go to the Odyssey on, on that Odyssey page there, if you go to the scroll down and find the online courses there, that'll tell, you know, for those of you who want to, who want to uh, find Odyssey, just Google um, Odyssey writing workshop. You'll, you'll find a link to the online courses. It lists three um, every year. And then you can click on the individual course. You can read about it. Um, I believe December 7th is the deadline for all three courses this year um, and they my course starts up like the first week in January something like that and it has information on costs on the the syllabus you know what you're going to get what kind of work you can expect to do in terms of homework assignments and critiquing so it it lays it out in a lot of detail homework Ugh. homework <laughs> you know homework Jason you have to get your homework in <laughs> it is so funny because as I get older well, the older I get, um, the 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 mo the more I can appreciate the irony of you know somebody like my son who's about to turn nineteen and you know he's he's just starting out in life and I was like, well, okay, yeah. Once you get done with school, once you get past school and you start real life, there's still going to be homework and and it's you know it's different. It takes on different forms. Yeah. Uh, but you know, it never, it never stops. It, it never ends. <laughs> I have to, I have to remind myself this is an opportunity to learn something new. This is, this is a, this is a good thing. This is productive. Right. You know, this is not. Well, I, I always like to, for, for my homework assignments at Odyssey, I like to give people an opportunity to submit something from one of the, you know, one of the projects they're working on. So like this year's course is on scene structure. The first assignment is going to be submit the opening scene of your short story or novel. Right. So that way, you know, we talk about, um, you know, there'll be a lecture uh, about, you know, X, Y, Z, the heart of the story, the characters, blah, 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 um, craft oriented kind of lecture. And then they get a chance to apply some of the things that we've just been talking about in the actual work that they're, you know, the project that they're working on. Uh, short stories versus novels. There are fewer, it seems, fewer markets nowadays for short stories than there used to be. I mean, you've mm -hmm. got you've got Asimov's out there. You still have, uh, you know, things like Crazy Eight doing their anthologies. You've got some different different collections and whatnot. Is is it better? Uh, do you see the short story market continuing in any kind of measure of strength? Or are short stories kind of on the, I don't want to say on the way out, but is there... Because, you know, everybody's making all of these deals, you know, the like we, we talked about the TV and movie deals for the novels. On occasion, I'll see one where they're developing a feature based on a short story, but that's mm -hmm. very rare. And it, should should there be more emphasis in the marketplace for short stories? Isn't that isn't that a good way, especially with new writers, to hone their craft a little bit on something that's a little bit more contained? I would say, should there be? Yes. Is it a good way to hone their craft? I think it. it yes, it, it is, obviously. Um, but of course, writing a novel is, you're using the same tools, but it's a whole different can of worms. Um, right. And people who have consistently written short stories, 
they often need to be encouraged to let the story breathe in a novel. And novelists who are trying to write short stories have to learn, you know, you got to pare it down. So I I think that's one of the biggest, biggest difficulties is making the transition from one to the other. I never wrote a short story before I was published. Uh, I mean, I did, but I never tried to, to publish them. I did because I thought, I should write short stories. They'll help me hone my craft. Right. Um, but I only, you know, I only had my, some of my short stories published after I'd, I'd written, oh gosh, a couple, maybe, maybe, maybe the whole first series. And I, I had a, I, I think for some reason it was easier for me to make that transition um, to short story than it, than it would, than it was for me to write short stories when I first began. Do, do you have students that have a preference? I just want to. I just want to write short stories. I don't want to get into the novel. It's either it's either too intimidating oh, or it's too much yeah. work. Or yeah, is that absolutely? Do you and, run and, into and, that and, a lot? Um, there are some. There are some people who take um, these online courses, and they might bring up two or three different short stories to work on. Um, there are some people who attend the Odyssey workshop, and again, they're they're working on on short stories. They're not working on novels, and that's fine. You know, they the students get to choose what projects they want to work on um, during any of the online classes or the or the workshops. We're not there to say, you know, you really should be writing a novel because that's where the money is. <laughs> no, it's it's if you want to write short stories, go for it. All right. Well, Barbara Ashford, thanks very much for your time today. And, and what are you working on now? Well, actually, I'm 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 uh, I'm finishing up some changes on the musical that's going to hmm, hopefully op- open in um, in June. Um, we've we're just sort of in the process of casting and 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 doing some final fine tuning in that. Um, also working on kind of a prequel musical to Spellcast, which was a novel. <laughs> and that's been kind of fun because I know all the backstory of this one particular character. And it's kind of been interesting turning it in, moving it from a, a fictional setting to a, to a, to a stage setting. Are, are you interested in that kind of thing? I, I hear a, a few years ago, the buzzword was transmedia, where you you get this story or this story universe that could cross across different, you know, film, TV, books, comics, audio, uh, and those kind of things. Do you have designs for any of your stories to do that kind of big um, spread? I guess you could say. Um. I love how you attribute, you know, a, a, a sense that I'm, I'm, I'm guiding my career instead of just kind of <laughs> going wherever the heck I go. Um, do I have designs? Absolutely not. I thought this would be a cool thing to do for a, for a, for a, a, a sort of a short one act musical. Um, what can I say? I, I tend to go, I, I tend to be less driven by anything to do with market and it's always kind of driven by where my heart is Uh, maybe my heart needs to be more in the market i don't know (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, for those of you who are interested in finding out what the next big thing is, uh, the website barbaraashford.com, and that is with a hyphen in between the name. I, I missed that when I first typed it in. Um, but there is that. And then there's also barbaracampbell.com uh, for the original uh, series of books that she wrote. Uh, but uh, either one connects to the other, so uh, you can find out uh, there. Now, Barbara, are you on any of the social media? Are you... I am very not on social media. Um, <laughs> you are smart. I, I am. I am very much a luddite in that sense. Um, so you can tweet all you want, and I ain't gonna Twitter back. Um, uh, so you can find me. Um, you you can find me on Facebook, but it's 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 my kind of personal Facebook page. Sure. It's not an author page. So if you want to connect with me, I suggest going to one of my websites. I'm always happy to exchange emails. Um, and if you're interested in the Odyssey Workshop, again, uh, Google Odyssey Writing Workshops, go to the online classes, and you'll be able to read all about them there. All right. And we will have the link to the Odyssey Workshop as well in our show notes. Barbara, thank you very much oh, for your time fabulous. today. All right. Thank you. This was great. I really enjoyed myself. All right. Thanks for watching Sci-Fi For Me TV. Be sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our channels so you don't miss our next broadcast. You're watching Sci-Fi For Me TV. All right, there we go. Thank you, Barbara. And we are back live in the bunker. Jason out here. And just a real quick thing before we go. Uh, over the weekend, uh, we heard of the passing of David Prowse, actor, bodybuilder. Uh, he was the first to wear the costume for Darth Vader in the Star Wars movies. And... It was not too terribly much long of a time uh, when uh, Twitter decided to be Twitter and uh, uh, started uh, dragging David Prowse uh, for his political stance. Apparently, he was pro-Brexit uh, for uh, for those for what it matters, and it's. It has me of a mind that I'm very much, well, 95, 98% done with Twitter. So there's a very real possibility. I just want to give people a heads up. There is a very real possibility that uh, by the time we get to 2021, Sci-Fi for Me may not be active on Twitter. We might maintain the account just so nobody else parks on it, but uh, there is a very real possibility there that we may not use Twitter uh, at all anymore. Now that we're getting very much traffic off of it anyway, but uh, just giving people a heads up. Now, uh, tonight, uh, don't forget we have a brand new episode of the H2O podcast. Mr. Harvey and I are going to be making recommendations for podcasts that are not ours. It is episode 247. We are drawing just a little bit closer to a milestone here. Uh, and uh, then on Saturday, 
a new time for Good Morning Multiverse. We will be on one hour later at 10 a.m. Central. This was our original time uh, when we first started the show back in 2019, and we ended up having to change it uh, to bump it up a little bit earlier for uh, family reasons. And so now we're able to move back to that regular time, that original time, rather. Uh, so that's what we're going to do. And yes, Sci-Fi Snob, we're, we're likely just going to use Twitter to, to post links and say, here's our, you know, here's our, here's our next article, here's our review, here's our show, and uh, completely do away with everything else. So, uh, because Twitter is a dumpster fire, and it is not, not worth the time. Um, although uh, it does it does keep me aware of some of the shenanigans going on, but really it's not all that much worth uh, the effort. So uh, we have had conversations with people making our mugs. Hopefully we'll be able to make an announcement about that soon. In the meantime, we do have these stickers available. I'll show that to you on the camera there. If you are interested, you can send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Sci-Fi for Me at 1503 Main Street. Number 305, Grandview, Missouri, 64030. We'll get that to you. You can also use that address to send us review material. If you have a book that you'd like us to review uh, or a comic book, a graphic novel, uh, anything like that, we can uh, add that to the queue. And uh, as we were doing this show, uh, Tim Harvey and Leslie Walker were over on uh, KKFI here in uh, Kansas City talking about their show. And it is uh, our new horror discussion. The latest episode just dropped this past Saturday. It's called Foreign Bodies. Episode 3 dropped uh, looking at horror from Russia and in two weeks' time on December 12th is when the next episode is going to hit, and they're going to be moving over to Spain. So uh, be sure to check that out. And as always, any feedback that you'd like to share for any of our shows is welcome. Of course, you can send an email to us here, live from the bunker at sci fi for mecom if you want to suggest guests or topics. Uh, or uh, if you've got something that you want to talk about, maybe, maybe, maybe we're still. I'm still. I'm still on the fence about whether or not to do some sort of a open mic call-in type of affair. We'll have to figure out the logistics of how to make that going on. So uh, anyway, yeah, uh, Snob, you've got a, a you've got a point. Some people do use uh, uh, direct messages over on Twitter for us to, uh, to get in touch with them. So. Might have to keep it, but may not use it that much. So, anyway, all right. So, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks very much for being here, folks. Robert, Seifestop, thanks for being in the chat. Uh, those of you who are watching in replay, uh, you can leave us a comment, share your thoughts. Of course, uh, if you're listening to this as a podcast, uh, if you could rate and share and uh, let us know what you think. Email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com, or you can leave a comment in any of the players. And we will be back with more tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. Thanks for being here. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.